Statewide media outlets are digging into the governor's Freedom Works Here campaign. From SDPB Radio, today is Wednesday, October 4th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the Dakota political junkies analyze the buzz around Freedom Works Here. Who's paying for it? How are we measuring success? Are the claims in the marketing campaign accurate? John Hunter and Michael Card are with us. Laura Rohde introduces us to ranters who find ways to support their communities through entrepreneurship. It's time for the annual Leap into the Leaf Pile. Eric Helland is with us to talk about fall cleanup in our yards. Plus, two artists collaborate on an installation for the Sanford Underground Research Lab in Leed. We'll explore their vision later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. This week is Banned Books Week. It's a nationwide opportunity to celebrate the right to read. Yesterday, we talked with Sarah Jones Luter about what librarians and patrons need to know about challenged reading materials. Today, we'll take a step back and talk about book access in general. The Rapid City Public Library is working to obtain and pilot a bookmobile to bring more books to readers in the community. Terry Davis is director of the Rapid City Public Library and is with me now on the phone. Terry, welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Having a bookmobile in a community is a big deal. Tell me a little bit about the push to get a bookmobile attached to the Rapid City Public Library. Well, we're pretty excited about it. If you talk to any of the staff here about Bookmobile, they all get a big grin on their face. Um, the Rapid City Library has had Bookmobiles in the past. The last one was given up in the mid-1980s. Um, get this, because of high fuel costs. Um, so here we are launching into it again. But, you know, what we determined is it is right now the most flexible and cost-effective means to get library materials out into the community. Certainly we could build a bricks-and-mortar branch, um, but the costs of building, um, equipping, staffing far outweigh the cost of a bookmobile. Mm. So we're looking forward to having this mobile, flexible, library around the community and the surrounding county area, and uh, having that as our means of getting materials out there. Tell me a little bit about what kind of support you have needed to move the project forward. Well, our library foundation has been instrumental in this. They've secured some grants. Um, we also were able to reallocate some um, library budget from previous years. Um, following COVID, we had some vacancies, and we were able to reallocate some of that vacancy savings to go towards the bookmobile. Um, that's that's pretty much it. A uh, lot of lot of community donors, um, different agencies throughout the community who have an interest in serving those who do have perhaps transportation or access issues. Yeah, let's talk about that. How do communities get the bookmobile to come to their neighborhood? What's their process? Well, right now we have a survey up on our library website, and it's a, it's a request for a bookmobile stop. And what we're trying to do is get 
feedback from the community about where they think a bookmobile stop would be useful and necessary. Um, we'll assess that information closer to the end of the year and, and see what we have. We've also been, for the past several years, taking the library out as a pop-up library. Obviously, it's seasonal because of the weather around here. But uh, that also has given us the opportunity to test a number of different locations throughout the community. And by doing that, we know, for example, that the farmer's market is a very popular location um, somewhere in North Rapid, going out to New Underwood. So those, those are, are things we know and will likely continue with the bookmobile. But we will be able to make many more stops with the bookmobile than we can with the pop-up. So we're looking to expand on that. So as director of the Rapid City Public Library, I'm sure that you hear from the community or you think deeply about access and this band book week um, as we look at uh, obstacles to people getting materials that they want to read. Um, how can access or just not having a, a, you know, a, a, a library in your neighborhood challenge people's efforts to even get, uh, sometimes you don't even think about that, but talk a little bit about the importance of access in libraries. Oh, it's absolutely critical. You know, we serve the entire community, and we have people using our library every day who, who don't even have library accounts with us. They just come in here because they know they can use the materials in here, they can read while they're in here, they can listen while they're in here, that kind of thing. Uh, use our Internet, for example. Yeah. But um, if you're... 20, even 15, even 10 miles out, and you don't have reliable transportation, or the roads aren't good, or, you know, whatever it might be, um, you can't get that information accessed. Yes, a lot is available online, but not everything, and some people prefer books. Also, even if it's online, if your internet access isn't good, that causes problems as well. So we will be carrying some Wi-Fi hotspots for checkout in the bookmobile as well as books and DVDs and games and magazines and all kinds of educational resources. Mm. Well, uh, Rapid City Public Library doing great work. Tara Davis, the director, thank you so much for being here with us today. We appreciate your time. We'll put some links up to how you can access that survey about where you want the uh, bookmobile to stop and what is required, you know, as far as like parking and restroom facilities for the staff and, you know, what you kind of need to think about before you ask for that stop. We'll put those links up on our website at sdpb.org slash news. And of course, you can find them on the Rapid City Public Library website as well. Terry, thank you so much. Uh, that's great. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Long ago, two Meade County Ranch women stepped into the world of entrepreneurship. What pushed them into this realm? Well, supplementing their family's ranch income was part of it, but they also saw unmet needs in their community. They wanted to help out their neighbors. Cheryl Hammerstrom owns Prairie County Cut and Curl. She and the rest of her team are all ranchers. They've provided haircuts and massage services to ranch families for nearly 40 years. Another ranch woman in Meade County, Ann Shaw, opened the White Owl Creek Salon Boutique more than three decades ago. 
What began as a hair salon blossomed into a salon and boutique. She moved her business into the historic White Owl store in 2020. Laura Rohde has this story for SDPB. Ask Cheryl Hammerstrom what she enjoys about her off-ranch career, and she responds without hesitation. I love my customers. I, I truly do. They, uh, they're just the best, actually. There's a, a connection, I think, that you make. Her customers feel the connection. Stan Anders. Just very friendly and just seems to care. Stan Anders is a second-generation Union Center business owner, and his business, Anders Trucking, sits across Highway 34 from Prairie Country Cut and Curl. Cheryl has been cutting his hair for many years, and like so many of Cheryl's customers, Stan appreciates the fact he does not have to drive 40-plus miles to get his hair cut. Providing a needed service to her community is the reason Cheryl stays open. This is ranch country. Again, Cheryl Hammerstrom. Our next door neighbors are like two miles away. And for the most part, the, then the rest of them are like eight to 10 miles away. So it's not like you can go next door every evening and have a chat with your, your neighbors. And so coming up here, then I get to see quite a few people in one day and we have conversations about grandkids and the rodeos that they're in or the basketball that they're playing or the baseball that they're in. In addition to her business, for more than 20 years, Cheryl served on the steering committee and took care of the scheduling for the Central Mead County Community Center. During our conversation, sisters Shade and Elixie Keffler arrived for their appointments. Shade is a high school freshman and Elixie is a seventh grader. Like Stan Anders, the sisters appreciate the convenience of Cheryl's shop. Alexi Keffler. You'd think that people out here would have like their moms cut their hair or something, but she's very, it's very nice to have her out here because not everybody wants to have their mom cut their hair. <laughs> and they never have to worry about having something to visit about because they have known Hammerstrom their entire lives. There's never a boring moment in here and it's never silent. We always have we always have some funny story to tell or something about something that happened in the past few weeks that we could talk about. Yeah, or like something our dad said. Yeah. <laughs> that she thought was funny. Although Hammerstrom enjoys her salon work, her first love is her family's ranch. She is a fourth generation rancher, and at the day's end, her favorite way to unwind is on horseback. Oh my gosh. I, I just love horses in general. They, um, they're good for my soul. Hammerstrom and her husband Terry ranch 20 miles south of Union Center. Helping keep the ranch afloat is one reason she opened her business in 1986. It was very essential that I went to work. We probably would have had to leave the the ranch and let it go had I not started the shop. Today, Hammerstrom Ranch does not depend on Cheryl's income, so she spends more days working with Terry. But Prairie Country Cut and Curl stays open even when she's not there because Hammerstrom's business is home to businesses owned by other area ranch women, Chelsea Shearer and Sharice Lynn. Just east of Union Center along Highway 34, another ranch woman operates a successful business. Yet, because of the rural nature of White Owl, 
it is a bit unexpected. Ann Shaw owns and operates White Owl Creek Salon Boutique. As the name suggests, Shaw's business is in White Owl. Back in the day, White Owl used to be a bustling community, but then in 1912, a prairie fire took out nearly every building in town except for the White Owl store and post office. Today, the White Owl store still stands because Shaw is determined to keep it open. 57792 is still on the map as a, a town, and so as long as it has that zip code on it, we're still considered a town. So it's pretty neat to say that I own the only store in White Owl, South Dakota. Keeping White Owl on the map matters to Shaw because her husband's family has been ranching in White Owl for more than a century. His family has always been from here, so um, since about 1897, I believe, his family came from Ireland and started ranching here. And we just lived a few miles down the road. Shaw opened her first boutique and hair salon on the family ranch. It gave me a creative outlet to use just because, because I like to be creative and I like to have something to do. So I think that's where it really, really helped me out and it helped our family out financially. When Shaw purchased the store after the previous owner passed away, it needed a lot of fixing up. So she and her husband, Les, got to work. <laughs> it has its challenges. Nothing in here is square. Nothing is even. It's old, and so there was a lot of challenges in getting it designed, but I think it all came together really well, and I really enjoyed giving it a little, a little facelift and, yeah, taking it back to an updated version of an old store. Their goal was to stay true to the store's architectural history while at the same time creating a space that was beautiful and welcoming. When they completed the White Owl store restoration in 2020, Shaw said the reaction from visitors told her they had accomplished their goal. When they walk in and say, oh, well, this is a surprise. I had no idea this was here. Visitors like Cody Mills. Well, it's kind of unique in the fact that Ann and Les came in and kind of revived an old store. And so you don't always get that. A lot of people will come in and tear down um, older buildings. Mills and her husband ranch with her parents near Belfouche. And like Shaw, she also has an off-ranch career. She is the editor of Cattle Business Weekly. Mills says that by revitalizing the White Owl store, Shaw brought more to this rural ranching community than a clothing boutique and a place to get a haircut. I think she's providing a little bit of a sense of community along with the service of being able to come in and maybe, you know, buy that gift item that I talked about. But then also if you maybe just want to come in and visit or see who's in the salon, it's kind of just a fun stopping spot for people sometimes, I think, too. It's easy to stop by and check out the White Owl store or Prairie Country Cut and Curl. They are both located right off Highway 34 between Sturgis and Pier. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Governor Kristi Noem has appeared on television screens across the nation for the Freedom Works Here recruitment campaign. She's presented her pitch for people to move to and work in South Dakota. And that pitch includes very appealing salary numbers and thousands of job openings. So let's check in today with our Dakota political junkies about that campaign and dig into the questions. 
Are these ads an honest representation of what it's like to live, work, and earn in South Dakota? Who is behind those ads? How do they get the bid, and how do we measure their success? Mike Card is a political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota. John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader and member of South Dakota newspaper Hall of Fame, and they're both with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Dr. Card, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Mr. Hunter, welcome as well. Thanks, Lori. Now, a lot of media outlets are digging into FreedomWorks here, and certainly the governor's office is very proud and has called it the most successful campaign of its kind ever. Um, so I just have a few of these articles in front of me today. SDPB's Lee Strubinger back in August was looking at that starting salary for an apprentice is $77,000 average, talking about that number. Um, South Dakota Newswatch, September 18th. Stu Whitney is looking at how businesses are being asked to pitch in. October 2nd, Patrick Lally with Sioux Falls Live is talking about the firm who is leading the campaign and their relationship with the governor's office and potentially her political ambitions. And then um, Dakota Scout, also Joe Sneavy, October 2nd, um, expanding on Patrick Lally's reporting and uh, kind of laying out that timeline further for who's getting paid to do um, these ads, and of course the governor's office is like, they're working and you're missing the point that they are working. So, a lot of attention to this ad campaign. Mike Card, let's start with you. Why do you think everybody cares so much about Freedom Works here and whether it's working? Well, I, I think there are two aspects to this. The first one is, is South Dakota needs workers. We have a 1.9% unemployment rate. We'll get the new one in uh, on this Friday, about 8 a.m., South Dakota's unemployment rate will be released. We have over 20,000 job openings. Uh, we need workers. We don't have workers. It's a double-edged sword to have a low unemployment rate. Looks good. People are working. But if we're going to attract new business, if business is going to expand, they need workers. And we, we don't have them right now. So we need to attract people. We can either do it through migration, people moving from other states, or from immigration, people moving from other countries. So that's the first aspect. The other aspect is, is are those salaries good? I think you want to talk about that a little later. But what is the ultimate goal, I would think, is actually to get people to apply for jobs with an employer. And that seems to be a missing link in, in this program is we apply to the state for maybe funds to work, but they have they get an appointment with a job counselor and then somehow they magically appear. I, I think that's the part uh, that uh, is really questioning here. But yeah. I'll let you run the conversation. <laughs> Not at all. John Hunter, what do you want to add to that? Boy, there's so many issues yeah. in this. I, your introduction into Mike's uh, speaking here. Um, people over time generally have followed jobs, and that's the, the, the migration that we're talking about, is they'll move from state to state where jobs are, and they'll move away from Michigan or Detroit or wherever it is when jobs are bad and to other states. So South Dakota has jobs. It's crystal clear that that's true. So this campaign is intended to accelerate that process and not just hear it by word of mouth, but to say, look, here's what it is. And the campaign has been fairly specific about what types of jobs these mm -hmm. are, contractors and so forth, and, and encouraging people. Uh, the Plum, change Plumbers, electricians, welders. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. right. There's so many of those jobs that are available. I know in Madison and other cities where work is not getting done because we have lack of, these, lack of uh, people with those skills. 
The legislature also addressed it by expanding the number of licenses that can come into the state. So I think it's modestly focused um, on uh, particular types of jobs, and it's really not really... There's some lifestyle um, to that, too, like come to South Dakota, it's safer or better or whatever. But I think it's mostly focused on jobs, and I think that's a good that's a good focus. Um, her bright side ad said, first, we stayed open for business during the pandemic. Second, we've got more jobs than people. Third, we're the freest state in America. We're the best state to live, work, and raise a family. We accept most out-of-state licenses. We've got 20,000 open jobs. And, of course, we also have, in other ads she's mentioned, we also have no state income tax. So you're going to keep more of that money. Th- those are a lot of selling points. Um, Mike Card, I want to talk a little bit about the salary, though, because that has been something that she sort of led with, with the average salary for an apprentice. And some of those trade organizations in South Dakota really pushed back against that and said that that number is really stretching what someone who's a starting apprentice is, is going to make. They're, you're not going to come here and make $77,000 on average, maybe ever. <laughs> 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 so how important is the accuracy? I mean, the, 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 the company stated a Department of Labor um, statistic that they were, were talking about. but it, it was a nationwide figure as opposed yeah. to a South Dakota figure. Uh, wages in South Dakota are generally lower than they are in most other places in the United States. Not all. Uh, our average, uh, I believe our average personal income is... $39,000. Our median family income is $49,000. Our average, or excuse me, median family income is $67,000. So we, we hope by recruiting skilled tradespeople that they're going to make above that. Now we start throwing in what are the limitations to that? Well, one of the biggest needs that we have in South Dakota is housing, and we had I wouldn't call it a debacle, but it was certainly a kerfuffle uh, in terms of... In terms <laughs> That's of, Lori's word. <laughs> in, I in do love of, the word kerfuffle. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's true. There's well, synonyms yeah. to that, too, too, by the way we could use. Yes. <laughs> a few. Uh, yes, my father taught me those from World War II, but we, we can't use them. Uh, but, I mean, we need housing. We need daycare. Uh, you need spousal employment. Uh, right. There's lots of things that go with recruiting people to the state mm-hmm. so that they can afford to live and work and take advantage of the wonderful things that we have in South Dakota. And we do have wonderful things. Right. When you check out SDPB's town hall last night about child care in the state, it certainly does not paint a picture with some of the information people were bringing that you would be able to find not only the work but the child care. So right. child care is a huge component of that, and I would um, suggest people check that out. Um, that recording out. Jackie Hendry did a, a fabulous job. It was really engrossing. I want to expand a little bit further and bring in some reporting that we've seen from South Dakota Newswatch and from Sioux Falls Live. Uh, Stu Whitney's piece is talking about businesses really being asked to pitch into this. So how is this campaign funded? Who's paying for it? And now why is the governor's office asking for more money from local businesses? Is that new? Is that unique to this? Um, who wants to sort of begin with with what the participate the participation of local businesses in this? What, what is the governor's office looking for here? Well, uh, let me start by sure. saying uh, in the recruitment in the online world, it's very expensive for in terms of getting contact information from which uh, people can follow up and then try to actually recruit people here. You know, what, what we're looking for is a qualified applicant with any recruiting effort. 
And so that has to be translated from someone who's interested in South Dakota, someone who works with an, an advisor to figure out how they can get here. And then once they get here, how do we get the applications to businesses so that they can determine whether there's a qualified applicant. So I would expect the rate to be relatively low and the cost to be relatively high. So in, in a sense, we've spent $6.5 million. Mm-hmm. It's high-quality work. There's no, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. That the, the ads firm, are high the, quality. The ads made, are high yeah, quality. Well made, yeah. <coughs> Go ahead. But just from that standpoint, we know this is a very expensive process, and there's probably limits to how much we can tap the uh, futures fund and the GoAd money to yeah. recruit here. John, say more about the futures fund. Help us understand where this money for the governor's ad first is coming from. Sure. It's... Um, uh, it, it was developed a long time ago, I, I believe, under Governor Mickelson's uh, leadership. Uh, so I'm going to say late 1980s is when that came into effect. But it was a, it was a surplus of, Mike, you can correct me on this, on unemployment contributions and intended really to, uh, like Governor Nomis, but let's talk about the next generation. Let's use, and that's why they call it the Futures Fund, is to try to do things that will benefit us in the future. There have been, however, governors have used it for all sorts of purposes, and uh, so I think it's it hasn't had it doesn't have legislative control like this. Is it is under the administration of the governor's or yes of the administration. So yes, some of that has been used. Um, there have been some other uh, sources too, Lori, as you mentioned on getting um, uh, development corporations from cities to c- contribute to this and the question is why would they why would they do that well they would be the beneficiaries and they're, they're trying to do the same thing they're trying to bring people to sioux falls or mitchell or yankton or madison and so but it is a little unusual to have that kind of funding in there but i think the governor's office and the people involved with this campaign believe that look at this is a success this is working let's continue this let's not yes we've spent this money already let's kind of keep it going and so that's why they're asking. I don't know the response to that. Some cities have said, yep, sure, we'll do it. Others said, no, we haven't seen any applicants. We haven't seen any numbers or names or contacts. So I, I don't know how that's going to continue to go. Yeah, there are certain things that are promised. Like you will get a mention on this website. You'll get, you know, you'll get a perk from it. You'll get contact, that data that you were talking about, Mike. And some of these businesses, according to Stu Whitney's piece, haven't really seen the information yet. They're hoping right. to see it soon. But as of September 18th, um, they were they were saying we haven't seen the results of this yet. And they may be choosing not to use this information. They want to do their own right. recruiting because they they're have already their own doing skill their own recruiting. Set that yeah. They're looking mm-hmm. for it in order to get qualified applicants that then they can determine: Can you do the work? Will you do the work? Can we stand to work with each other? The three fundamental questions in hiring. And this gets to something else, which all these pieces are kind of getting at, is is this campaign about South Dakota or is it about the governor herself? Is it raising her national profile, which will in turn help her win a national office, or is she using her national profile to recruit workers for South Dakota because she's good at it and it works? And that is something people have... uh, a lot of questions about because we're talking about public money that's being spent in a nationwide campaign. Where is that line for you, John Hunter? Where is that line for for any of us? Where should the line, <laughs> where should the line be? Well, I think your your question described the situation perfectly. There is um, 
there certainly are people in other states who already know Governor Nome from television appearances, national campaigns, campaigning for others, campaigning for herself. She does have a much higher national profile than any uh, or many of our previous governors. It's not unusual for the governor to be the face of a state. I mean, you think of Chris Christie. I mean, you could think of a lot of governors who do that. So the question is, is and your question is, I'll repeat it even, are we taking this national profile and saying, hey, people recognize this face and so forth, and saying, hey, I want to move to South Dakota? Or are we saying we're spending tax, taxpayer monies uh, to say, let's, let's promote this, let's put the face of this governor on a NASCAR, on the side of NASCAR, to, to raise that profile even further? So it's, and the reason it's a challenge is because, yes, it's, done, it's been done before. Not as much in South Dakota, probably not much since Governor Jankel used to be pretty large profile, at least in the region. Um, going to Minnesota and, you know, calling out uh, Rudy Perpich over there. But um, I'd say, it actually, the NASCAR example that I bring up, to me, was the line. That was, there is not much on that car talking about South Dakota. There's a large photograph of Governor Nome. So, and you think of a NASCAR audience, um, maybe there are a lot of tradespeople in there watching NASCAR. Maybe that's an effective way to do that, and you put, it, put this photograph on the side of the car. But uh, to me, and also, remember that list of six things you just read here mm-hmm. a little bit? When mm-hmm. you say, we're the freest state in America, that's a campaign statement. Right. There's no real thing about a, a welder coming from another state that does that. So that might be appealing to Republicans in other states, or even even right Republicans, and say if we say freedom and with a capital F most of the time, then maybe that would encourage more Republicans to move here. And I don't think that's that should be the goal. At least maybe it is, or maybe not. But we're trying to get workers, tradespeople with skills and licenses and so forth. So there are lines. I could I think I could argue either way, um, whether that's a profile thing working here or a promotion of the governor. And where some of the TV ads have been located are not exactly where skilled tradespeople would look. The the debates, the counter-programming to the debates, running those ads there, usually uh, those who watch those types of programs are politicos, people who are interested. But in Joe poly- Plummer is watching those. <laughs> you remember Joe Plummer's appreciation of the, <laughs> the debates? All right. I do want to get to this timeline. Speaking of lines and crossing or not, the timeline, and this is largely I'm going to quote from Sioux Falls Live's coverage, Uh, written by Patrick Lally, looking at the agency and the CEO of this agency, Benjamin Yoho of Strategic Media Placement. Um, January 7th, the CEO is photographed at the inauguration with Governor Kristi Noem. January 11th, Strategic Media Placement, which is not a South Dakota company, registers as an out-of-state company. On January 12th, the day later, they get their designation. Um, for doing business as strategic media. January 13th, the RFP for the Freedom Works here is published, and April 13th, they're awarded the contract. So the argument or the questions are, and, and uh, Yoho is uh, tied to Lewandowski, is tied to the Republican Party, so the idea is, were they tipped off? The governor's office says, no, they were not tipped off. There was going to be an RFP. Uh, but Mike Card... You say it doesn't pass the smell test. Well, I, I don't think it does uh, because, it, I mean, it's a case. There, there appears to be some smoke here. The timeline looks suspicious, and I think that was the point of Mr. Lally's reporting. Uh, 
John Schaff, a political science professor at Northern State University, also noted that this, this just doesn't look right. We don't know. Uh, I, I think it, we, would, we would feel better if there weren't so much money involved that we're, we're talking almost $7 million by the time this program will, will be completed. We're asking businesses and development organizations and communities to throw in more money. Uh, how much of this is going to whom? It's high quality work, but we haven't seen results that we can depend upon to judge whether the program is working or not. So then that raises people's suspicions, and then that's why where I come off saying it, it fails the smell test. Final thoughts, John, our last 30 seconds. It's fair to say that under Governor Noem's administration that most, if not all, actions have some sense of political uh, underlying. At most, it's entirely political. So this, uh, I think you could make an argument that um, all these decisions and, and having a, a, uh, an experienced agency run a non-political, a, a political agency running a non-political campaign uh, at least fits in with what has happened in the most, but it, it could very well be past what we'd normally consider success. Hmm. All right, more on this later. John Hunter, Mike Card, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks for having us. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The leaves are starting to turn, summer flowers are drying up, and cooler fall weather is on the way. It is that time of year when we turn our attention to fall cleanup preparations. Fall cleanup is not just a chore. It's a chance to embrace the season while ensuring <coughs> we're ready for the winter ahead. And guiding us on this journey, we have Eric Helland. He's CEO and president of Landscape Garden Centers. He is with me for the final time this season in the Kirby family studio. We'll see you again. Just not absolutely not once the snow flies. Not that no. we're going to have snow, but no. It's El Nino is what we're supposed to be experiencing. Is that right? Well, we'll see what that right. means. What's on your fall checklist? Fall checklist. Okay, let's go. So, um, irrigation irrigation systems start winterizing, mm -hmm. shutting them down, draining all the water out. Before you do that, if you do have really, really dry areas, water, 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 um, the rain that we've had recently has been nice, but not significant enough to really be able to get the subsoil uh, replenished. Sure. Uh, so we could definitely use more moisture there. And I'm talking mostly of the Sioux Falls area because we've been missing out on some opportunities. So dry, yeah. yeah. Then when it comes down to the plants... I mean, so collecting seeds, that was one of the things. Collecting seeds is what we want to do yeah. uh, because that's one of the things that you can be looking at what you have, the plants that you have. You want to propagate, meaning if you want to take a transplant, take your hostas, cut them all up into different pieces and share. Mm. Daylilies, um, things like that. Um, um, and then kind of going through, and then you can start, but you might want to wait a little bit, but when it starts cooling off, then you can do the, we call it the fall cleanup. So you cut things back that can be cut back to the ground, start removing all of the debris, the leaves, the garbage, yeah. tr uh, trimming and getting all of that stuff cleaned up. You can start mowing. Once you get to where you're almost to the last mowing, mow trap that mower down a little bit lower. Okay. That helps from keeping rodents, giving them a place to live like voles. Oh, well, so if it's an cute. open winter, 
they're cute if they're in your neighbor's yard, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, things like that. We had a bull that we named Louis. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's Louis I'm, the Fourteenth because just, there's. I think they propagate pretty quickly too. Actually, it was Louis after Louis and Clark because he was an explorer and kind of moody. Oh. In our yard, so we oh, we okay. we clocked Lewis's mood for a whole for a whole winter season. Okay, not always a reliable. Nor that's what happens in South Dakota nor winters. North ethical explorer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to go back to what you said about saving seeds and yes. propagating things. Before we do that cleanup, um, what can be saved and what can be preserved, and how? Okay, so say you have grasses. Yeah, you know, a lot of what we're going to be doing is you're going to be cutting out and taking the roots and the plants, and then you're going to reestablish them in another area and water it in. What that will do is you're not going to see a lot of top growth happen, but the roots will keep on growing. Roots will continue to grow up until the ground freezes. Okay. So there's a lot of activity going on in Mother Nature, even though we don't see it. So when things are shutting down, there's still a lot of activity going on within the the, the stems, the roots, the, the branches, the trunks. Um, you know, so a lot of stuff will be taking even taking fertilizer up. It might not be using it, but it might be uh, kind of storing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something to always remember. Okay. Uh, now, last year, I don't think any of us have forgotten, because it seems like it was yesterday that we were mm-hmm. watching everything get destroyed by the rabbits during a mm-hmm. winter. Yep. Hopefully, we're not going to have that same kind of winter this year. But are there things you should do to protect your newer landscaping? Great, great, great question. Yes. So small trees, small branches and things like that. There's tree guards. Put tree guards on, tree wrap. Anything that has kind of a sugary type of sap, your crab Mm -hmm. apples, your maples and things like that. Those are things that things that those are types of plants and trees that rabbits like. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, like this last year, they started gnawing on anything. So protect those types of things that you knew you saw damage. You can put around wire cages. Okay. Um, you can build that up high enough so that you know that it's going to be able to withstand the snow height. Right. So if we're four foot or high, then maybe a four foot fence isn't going to do it. Yeah. You'd have to go to a six foot or eight foot. So I have this bush out front that, I mean, we lost like half of it mm-hmm. to the rabbits, trimmed it back because you told me to, mm-hmm. uh, waiting for it to turn its beautiful fiery red colors. It has not done that yet. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's half. It's half there. It's not the most attractive formation of a bush ever, but it's mm-hmm. still alive. So cut. So wrap that up now and get it ready to go. Yeah, you could maybe wait a few more weeks sure. here until we get but, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I'm guessing that's a burning bush. Probably. Right. Turns bright, bright yeah. red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that one, that's candy for. That's like a, the M mm-hmm. and M's for. It was indeed. for rabbits. <laughs> and so they just love to devour those. But mm-hmm. sometimes, you know. In some cases, look at it as where they actually trimmed it down for you, and now it re, re, right. will replenish. And then even next spring, it'll come back with a vengeance and be that much more. It'll flourish that much more. All right. Any final thoughts when you rake those leaves? I well, always rake mine a little late because of the hibernating bees and such. But yeah, I, it all comes down to is how much time you have and when you have the time to do it. Okay. Well. There's really no rules because if we're I'll follow or how those. much you like to procrastinate and say it's right. for the benefit. I would mulch the leaves. That's one thing I oh. would do because that really provides a lot more organic matter to your lawn. And then mulch and then grind up those leaves and get them in your garden because that's awesome compost. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Thank you for another wonderful season. Yes, it was fast. <laughs> it was fun. Fun and fast, right? <laughs> 
Eric Allen, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Science and art collide at the Rudel Gallery at Black Hill State University tomorrow. Nicholas Kahn and Richard Selesnik are the artists in residence at the Sanford Underground Research Facility. They're a collaborative art team who work primarily in photography and installation art. And their science-based exhibition, Obscura Materia, Dark Matter and the World Beneath, has an opening reception tomorrow at the Rudel Gallery from 5 to 7 p.m. local time. Well, ahead of that reception, they are joining us in SDPB's Sue W. White studio at Black Hill State in Spearfish. Nicholas Kahn, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you. Richard, thank you for being here as well. Uh, thank you. Richard, tell us a little bit about how you two met as artists in school and kind of found this common language. What was uh, what were some of those first conversations like that kept you together all these years? Uh, yeah, actually, one of the first things we did um, after we met is we went into Forest Park in St. Louis. Uh, we were out there. We just arrived as uh, freshmen at Washington University. And we went into the park and we started doing little stone arrangements and mini stone hinges um, out of uh, rocks in the park, uh, just almost uh, playing together like uh, ten-year-olds. Yeah, uh, I grew up uh, in uh, partly spending my time in England and obsessing over the stone circles, and Richard was partly growing up in England as well, and we both had... Uh, life in America and in England and so we had this shared language that was immediately there and now I don't know 40 years later yeah and I think also just kind of our entrance to working together was kind of a sense of a play, play and play. exploration which uh, we've just continued uh, right up till now and I'm not sure there's a better place than the underground research lab oh. <laughs> to, to come up with new ways to play and explore what drew you to this place yeah, as soon as we heard, because we're both uh, total kind of like science nerds in a certain way, even though we don't necessarily understand a single bit of the mathematics behind it all. Uh, but we're very curious about the weirdness of of uh, physics, of kind of modern physics. And so as soon as we heard that uh, this stuff was being explored and that it was underneath the amazing landscape and history that's above ground, yeah, uh, we were immediately like, oh, we've got to apply for this. We, yeah, we've de dealt with space before. We worked with NASA um, and on the Mars program, and we've shot in Idaho in that. And then when we heard that we could be playing around in the amazing landscapes here in, in South Dakota, we both had dreamt of coming to. Um, but to go underground and start to deal with sort of the Greek mythological underground world and deal with the, like dark matter and the physics of that and real scientists doing such incredible stuff with that. It was like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing we need to apply for. So, Nicholas, how do the scientists look at you? Are they happy to have you here and, and expanding that worldview, or did they look at you as a little bit of uh, a weirdness as well? <laughs> <laughs> they are as weird as we are. Excellent. Um, it was it was a good match. They all have huge imaginations. The only way they can do that stuff, and I think a lot of them have a kind of a sci-fi 
uh, excitement and, and they when they see our work they kind of get it in a kind of a gut way and yeah a, a lot of them seemed as excited about what they're doing uh, as we get about what we're doing and so I think that kind of immediately communicated itself and uh, yeah there were certain personages uh, who worked down there who we ended up doing quite a lot of photos with yeah, yeah no. that was my where I want to go next because I'm familiar with some of your work and the photography and the way you put yourselves or you put other people into it. I was wondering if there was a, a connecting point there for some of the scientists. So tell us a little oh, bit about, sure. about this exhibition. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, we, we basically, we kind of um, gathered tons of different kind of uh, mineral orbs uh, that we started using to create a kind of a environment of um, things we imagined, like kind of strings of dark matter and kind of shapes that uh, echo some of the scintillations that the machine's trying to pick up. And we also built a whole setup of uh, buttons that kind of looked weirdly like space or like uh, subatomic uh, particles that so we got some of our our own characters from our own mythology kind of dancing and doing interactions within these environments and that was that was at a at the opera house they had a space for us as a studio not far from the lab so they would send down interns and some of the physicists from the lab that we had met uh, both down underground in the actual lab uh, and in the local pub uh, during their kind of uh, neutrino day celebrations which mm -hmm. was awesome fun um, and so we would then suddenly dress them up like uh, sort of Renaissance um, alchemists in all these velvets holding the various orbs. And uh, we'd pose them and ourselves and some other uh, characters and various other people from Leed who worked in the stores across the street and whoever had kind of excitement over our project. We tried to really involve the community. Yeah, you could basically, in Leeds, uh, the Opera House there, if you looked through the window, you could see us uh, dancing around in our weird outfits. <laughs> I uh, just love that. Had, yeah, we had some uh, interested looks. Suddenly people yeah. would, like, stop and be staring in, and I'd be dressed up as a, a kind of Regency owl and yeah, things and like that. There was Hermes in, in his uh, fine Greek robes and partly naked, and then the, the various... Some of the teachers here at uh, uh, the Black Hills State were, were coming in. The art teachers were in the photos as well. So it was lovely getting to really know the community, involve them in our weird version of trying to find a new mythology and way to explain dark matter as, mm -hmm. as something uh, that you could enter by going into the underworld. And so it was it was profoundly exciting when we did three different trips down into the one mile deep mine and found physics labs down under there that were dealing with the most unbelievable awesome questions in the universe oh, i love that uh, and, and nicholas art asks those questions just as much as science does right yeah, absolutely i love that that's the, what that's why the, the there was this instant language between us and the scientists there it was super super cool all right, I want to make sure I let people know that uh, the exhibition's opening reception is Thursday, October 5th. That's tomorrow. It's at the Rudel Gallery at Black Hill State University from 5 to 7 p.m. local time. Uh, we're not, I'm not doing it justice. You really have to see the things uh, to fully experience the work that these two artists are doing. I think we're just incredibly lucky to have you in South Dakota for this period of time. Come back and uh, 
and and then also share this story far and wide. We really appreciate your time today. Thank Thanks you. so much. All right. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. If you miss a broadcast of In the Moment on the radio, you can always tune into the podcast. Go to whatever platform you get your podcasts and look for SDPB and In the Moment. On tomorrow's program, Congressional Chaos and the Call for Compromise, we'll check in with South Dakota's U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson, and we'll talk about shifting leadership in the U.S. House, plus Major League Baseball and lessons from some of its darkest times, Frontline explores the Astros edge and the Houston team's 2017 cheating scandal. We'll dive into that. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.